0: In the summer of 1997, reporters raced to the Caribbean island of St. Vincent to report on an American couple. Their names were Jim and Penny Fletcher, and they had a reputation as rich, rude Americans. They'd been kicked out of some of the best bars and restaurants in their hometown of Huntington, West Virginia, before leaving for the Caribbean on a yacht called the Carefree. Alcohol and drug-induced sexual hijinks followed them from port to port, ending up in the Grenadines with a mysterious murder. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. Thank you so much for listening and a huge thank you to those who have taken the time to write and review the podcast or shared it with a friend. If you are a returning listener, you're my favorite kind of listener. And if you're listening for the first time, I'd like to give you a quick heads up that I do live and record on a sailboat at the moment. You might hear some water noises or boat noises now and then in the background. Today we're going to the West Indies. The island of Bequay is part of an island group called St. Vincent and the Grenadines. It's one of only four countries where the International Whaling Commission still allows whaling to support local aboriginal communities. They hunt the whales with harpoons just like they did a hundred years ago. Locals eat the whale meat, sell it to tourists, harvest the oil for medicine, cooking, and other household purposes. This makes Bequay one of the few places in the world that you can buy scrimshaw or carvings of the whale's teeth and whalebone artwork from locals. Jim and Penny Fletcher didn't have their eyes on scrimshaw or whale meat when they entered the West Indies. Instead, they wanted to escape from life back in West Virginia and maybe have a little too much fun. Bob Fletcher, Jim's father, had made his fortune in selling mining equipment. His company grew in the late 90s It employed 200 employees. Jim went to work for his father and for the Fletcher Company right after graduation. He started in sales and wound up as the CEO. He was active in Republican politics and even served as the party's chairman for the county. He ran for the West Virginia House of Delegates in 1984 and 1986, but lost both times. By 1988, he had been married and divorced twice. Things weren't going Jim's way. But there was more coming. He would be named but never charged in a drug sweep that netted a Fletcher and Company accountant and a woman named Penelia Carter. She would become Jim's future third wife. She was born and grew up in Olive Hill, Kentucky. As a teen she was a cheerleader who later started running with a fast crowd. She would acquire a nasty cocaine habit that was reportedly costing her between five hundred and eight hundred dollars a week in the late eighties. Eventually, she was caught with cocaine, and in order to beat the rap, she turned state's evidence. She was definitely a wild child, and often bragged that she carried a gun, and was even kicked out of a local bar in Huntington for flashing it around on the premises. In the early 1990s, Jim had a drinking problem. His friends described him as needing direction or a challenge, and this is what Penny seemed to provide for him. He had known her for years— But when they started dating and hanging out at bars and taverns together, their affair caught fire. Jim surprised his family in the fall of 1993. When out of the blue, he called them from Bermuda and invited them to a spur-of-the-moment wedding. Only six months later, Jim would file for divorce, but something must have changed because they reconciled, and shortly afterward, Jim retired. He was 47, and Penny was 33. They decided that they would sail off into the Caribbean together. Jim had bought a 47-foot yacht called the Carefree from his father. They spent four months repairing the boat, fixing it up, and getting it ready for an open-ended voyage. Between the couple, they had five children, including three school-aged kids, but that didn't slow them down. They must have had very supportive families because they fully intended to take the trip alone, leaving the youngest children behind with relatives. Jim and Penny set sail from Key Largo in April of 1995, with the boat fully provisioned. They had plenty of food and booze, and they carried a Smith & Wesson 22 with 200 rounds of ammunition for protection. The gun was still in their possession, and was registered at Customs when, on August 21, 1996, they entered St. Vincent and the Grenadines. They spent time there to stock up on food, fill their gas and water tanks, and have a few drinks at the local bars, before they sailed on to the Grenadines, where the beaches are far more beautiful and the anchorages rival any in the world. A couple days later, they would arrive at the largest of the Grenadine islands, Bequay, where they settled in to stay for a while. Bequay, in the Carib language, means island of the clouds. It's not only famous for whaling, but also for its aura of romance. Port Elizabeth is the main town in Bequay, and from afar it looks idyllic. The beach is covered in pure white sand. The hillsides on Beckway are vibrant green with white cotton ball clouds hanging in the sky above. Jim and Penny dropped anchor here and quickly became recognizable among the locals in the establishments surrounding Admiralty Bay. One of the first people they met was a fit and healthy man who introduced himself as Jolly. His full name was Jerome Joseph, but he preferred his nickname. Jerome Jolly Joseph was a 30-year-old entrepreneur with a successful water taxi service. He, like many other men, would compete for business from the visiting boaters. These locals made their living from tourists and would provide almost any service for a price. These hard-working men will bring ice, haul garbage, pick up liquor or gas, and provide transportation as needed. They're hard-working salesmen who provide a much-needed service to the cruising community. I've seen them hop happily into their boats to help guide cruisers through difficult channels. Sometimes these men will move and secure visiting boats to the mangroves when a hurricane is threatening. Jolly was one of nine children and was widely admired in his tight-knit community as a hard-working, non-drinking, frugal man with a vision and a good savings account. At thirty years old, he was known to be the first one up in the morning and the last to bed when visiting yachters swarmed in and out of Admiralty Bay. He was reported to have had the longest established operation in the harbor, and he never cut corners. If he had a weak spot, and we all do, his was for women. He allegedly enjoyed the company of white female visitors looking for a dark remembrance of their stay in Paradise. Of course, he didn't do this with every visiting boat, but he would happily provide this additional hospitality when he was inclined, as did many of his peers. Penny and Jim hired Jolly on a regular basis. Typically, this would be to run small errands to gather alcohol or cigarettes, but sometimes he was seen with them around town. He would introduce them to other locals who would provide them with extended services. These might be restaurant owners, taxi drivers, repairmen, or whoever might be able to help the Fletchers with whatever their needs were. Penny and Jim had money, and they liked to spend it. They went out often and soon became known for their love of local rum. According to reports, Jim would buy about a fifth of liquor almost every day. He would then pass out early, forcing Penny to find her own entertainment and company. She was seen touring the bars and rum shops in Port Elizabeth with Jolly and would refer to him as her protector. They were seen sitting close to each other and talking intimately. It was probably inevitable, given Jolly's history with women, that some people in town assumed they were having an affair. When Jim and Penny went out together, They drank too often and too much, mostly a 92-proof local brew called Sunset Very Strong Rum. Jim was a quiet drunk, but Penny would become vicious. She'd pick fights with bartenders, waitresses, and even vendors on the streets. The couple fought in public for the world to see. I suppose it's true that money can't buy class. On Friday evening, October 4th, the rhythm of life in Beckway was normal. It was slow and easy, but Penny Fletcher changed that in a hurry. She and Jim were bickering at the gingerbread restaurant, and it wasn't the first time. The restaurant was owned by Pat Mitchell, who was the Prime Minister's ex-wife. That night, she said the couple both drank a great deal. Penny seemed unstable and unhappy and caused problems wherever she went. Later that evening, she flew into a drunken rage at Buddy's Bar, which was a tiny hangout next to the open-air fish and vegetable market. She got into a screaming argument with three male patrons who were local seamen. This led her to throwing bottles at them, and then she managed to bite one of them on the chest. A local police officer escorted her away, and Jim came back the next day to pay for the damage done inside the bar. The Fletchers didn't have the best behavior, but they weren't terrible people either. Penny gave money to the local school and told family lawyers that she wanted to establish a $25,000 trust for the island in order to provide a better education for the children. I find this ironic, since she didn't seem to want to be involved in her own children's education or even their childhood, considering they left their kids at home. She and Jim intended to stay in Beckway. They were starting on plans to run a charter business. They set a meeting with local business leaders where they promised to share 10% of the profits from the yacht charter business. It was reported that locals took this business plan with as much seriousness as Jim Fletcher, who was so drunk at the meetings he could barely speak. Beckway residents weren't the only ones to judge the Fletchers. Drama seemed to follow them as the couple wound their way through the Caribbean. At a bar in Antigua, Penny loudly claimed that she had been raped by a black man and because of this she vowed to shoot a black man in revenge. When the couple went home in September leaving their boat in Beckway Penny allegedly told her family that she was pregnant and had an abortion. This raised eyebrows because her husband had had a vasectomy. So why am I spilling the tea on the Fletchers? Well this information merely rumors at the time would be rehashed months later at a trial for murder. Murders were rare in Beckway. Homes and businesses were often left unlocked, and police officers didn't carry guns, but this would change. On the morning of October 7th, at Jerome Jolly Joseph's home, his kin began to worry because he hadn't come home the night before. They looked out the windows of their home overlooking the bay to try and see his boat. Worry changed to fear when Stephen Joseph, the victim's brother, found the jolly Joseph water taxi washed ashore. There were two live 22 caliber bullets found inside. The carefree was anchored down current from where the water taxi was found, and before long, locals began shouting and pointing fingers at the Fletcher yacht. They were yelling at the Fletchers, calling them murderers. Divers were soon searching the seafloor around the carefree, and by mid-morning, officers boarded the boat and questioned the couple. That afternoon, an angry crowd gathered near the yacht. It's at this point that the couple became scared and began to pull up anchor, planning to head out of Admiralty Bay. They didn't respond to repeated calls by authorities on the VHF radio. Before they got far, they were intercepted by the St. Vincent Coast Guard, who escorted them back into the harbor. It appeared to onlookers as if they were fleeing the scene. Two days later, a sea captain, on his way to the southern Grenadines, spotted Jolly's ravaged body adrift near an area called Moon Hole. He had been submerged for two days. The marine life had done their part in this time. Jolly's skin was peeling off, and small fish had nibbled away his eyelids, nose, and lips. A 22 bullet had pierced his lungs and heart. News quickly spread that the Fletchers had been heard on the VHF radio, calling Jolly at 10 p.m. on October 6th the night before he vanished. The Fletchers said they had wanted a ride to the beachside gingerbread house and restaurant, and Jolly happily responded to the call. Jim and Penny would report that they found the restaurant closed for the night, and Jolly returned them to their yacht. On their way back to the boat, they said that Jolly got another radio call, but no one reported seeing him alive after that. They were the last known point of contact with the living Jolly. Rage, Rumfield, gossip, and rumors began to flow around the couple. The carefree was searched four times, and the Fletchers were taken into custody. While the boat was being searched, Jim and Penny were questioned for over fifty hours, without food or sleep. But their claims of innocence never changed, and there would be no confession. In time, some damning evidence against the Fletchers would begin to surface— They had registered their handgun and the 200 rounds of ammunition with customs officials when they arrived in St. Vincent. The problem was that the gun was not found during the searches of the boat, and 80 rounds of ammunition were missing. To explain this, the Fletchers told police that the gun had been stolen back in August by Benedict Redhead. He was a former deckhand that they had hired to help out on the boat. Police found Redhead nearby on the island of St. Lucia. He not only denied stealing the gun, but he had a story to tell. He claimed to have witnessed the affair between Penny and Jolly. But that wasn't all the evidence. When police searched the boat, they also found a fiberglass storage chest with some reddish stains on it and a bullet-torn rubber dinghy. Police began asking around about the Fletcher's activities in the days leading up to the murder. They interviewed the three men who had been in a fight with Penny, and the men recounted a damaging statement she had said once again about wanting to kill a black man because she'd been raped by one. She also, allegedly, told the men that she celebrated her 35th birthday only four days before Jolly would go missing. They remembered this day because she said she had shot their rubber dinghy several times, just for shits and giggles. This contradicted the Fletcher's earlier statement that the gun had already been stolen. On October 30th, the Fletchers were arrested and charged with murder. They now faced execution by hanging if convicted. For the next six months, the couple would live on rice and water. Jim was held inside the Greystone Prison built in 1872. It was built for ninety inmates, but it held more than three hundred and twenty five. Jim's face grew leaner, more haggard, and spoke volumes about what he and Penny endured. Being an alcoholic, he likely detoxed uncomfortably in what he described as dungeon-like conditions. Penny was held in a nearby women's prison, where she said she was plagued by rats while she slept. Chances are she detoxed here as well. She was denied health care when she expressed a desire to be checked for cervical cancer, which she had been diagnosed with earlier in the year. Eventually, she would be taken to the hospital and cared for, but she fought a long battle before her health concerns were addressed. Ironically, two days after the arrest of the Fletchers, a woman was stabbed to death on a boat belonging to Alan Heath. He is a South African yachtsman. His wife, Lorraine, was attacked by two intruders, and the police treated him as a suspect. He said he was only allowed to go free after he had paid a $25,000 bribe. The government, the police, and the lawyers who represented him dismissed his allegations. The lawyer said the money he paid was to cover the fees of the attorneys who represented him. But Allen persisted with his allegations and mounted a campaign on the Internet to dissuade tourists and boat owners in particular from going to St. Vincent. In the months after the Fletcher's arrest, relatives and supporters mounted an intensive campaign asking for support. They made a website and held news conferences. They wrote letters to the White House and to the State Department, and because they were well off and well connected, they got international attention. They got international media attention. Eventually, as a measure of their success, even President Bill Clinton had been briefed on the case. News correspondents ran with the story, suggesting that perhaps the U.S. Tourism Department should put a warning up for tourists planning to visit St. Vincent and the Grenadines. This would threaten the livelihood of many of the locals. These subtle threats, Hit home for the locals in Beckway.
1: Susan Eads, Jody Loomis, Jessica Baggin, Christy Mirac, Gwen Miller. What do all these women have in common? They are all murder victims whose cases went cold for decades until they were finally solved thanks to a new crime-solving technique that is changing the game: forensic genealogy. But who were these women? Why did their homicide cases remain open and unsolved for so long? Who were their killers? And what was the link between each victim and her murderer? DNA ID sets out to answer these questions. My podcast looks at the original crime, the investigative work on the case, red herrings, potential suspects, and the evidence left behind by the killer and it then examines how each case was solved by forensic genealogy and the connection that led to the fateful interaction between victim and murderer. In many cases, I speak to the detectives who cracked the case, and they give me insight into their methods, theories, and what went on behind the scenes. Join me every other Monday for a new episode. Be sure to subscribe to DNA ID wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode.
0: Following the story of the second murder and the alleged bribery paid out, One of the lawyers representing Penny claimed there was a deal that was proposed to him by a prominent Venetian that the Fletchers pay a bribe of $100,000 and be allowed to go free. This news added wind to the hurricane of media closing in on Beckway. Nightline's Ted Koppel spoke on the Fletcher's behalf, invoking public and official outrage. CNN's Burden of Proof featured the Fletcher family and friends the night before the trial started but the media was very one-sided. They portrayed the Fletchers as being innocent victims of a corrupt island government left to wither away in a primitive prison. The couple were labeled as prisoners in paradise. CNN's Burden of Proof verbally agreed to allow Prime Minister Mitchell equal time to level the playing field, but he was ambushed on the air. The host allowed Fletcher supporters to dominate the story with half-truths and gave the Prime Minister little opportunity to comment on the relevant issues. Allegations were made that Jolly was a drug dealer and that perhaps his involvement in the drug scene may have been why he was killed. Locals dismissed this notion. They said that in a country as small as St. Vincent, with an entire population of 107,000 at the time, and even less at Port Elizabeth on Beckway, There were less than 2,000 residents there. Everyone knew who the drug dealers were, and Jolly wasn't one of them. When it came time for the trial, the Fletcher family was present in numbers. Jim's grown children and his sister, as well as a few other relatives, including his father, were present. This was his father's third visit to Kingstown since his son's arrest. Jim and Penny were seated together, confined in a tight little boxed-in area. Jim looked sallow and dark around his eyes, but Penny was bright and anxious, glancing nervously at her in-laws and friends. Jim wore a black business suit that hung on his frame, and Penny wore a plain dress, according to a journalist named Bill Bark, who wrote for OutsideOnline.com. He wrote an excellent article on the case, which I used as a primary source. The couple certainly didn't appear to be murderers. One of the first issues the judge had to address was whether or not Penny's statement about wanting to shoot a black man could be part of the evidence. The first attorney to speak proceeded from logic, saying that Penny had not threatened an individual black man. Rather, he had tossed out a barroom threat against a class or category of people. In rebuttal, the prosecution argued that if you find a missing egg from your hen house and your dog, who is known as a dirty old egg-sucking dog, has been in the vicinity, isn't it fair to assume that the dog might be guilty? The judge considered it briefly before making the decision to refuse admitting her statement as evidence. Prosecution then brought in witness after witness to relate bits of information in order to form a complete narrative, but the story was thin in places, and it was entirely circumstantial. Essentially, the case was a grim tale of the murder and the Fletcher's damning behavior in the days preceding it. The defense did its best to poke holes in the case and cast doubt. Couldn't Jolly's water taxi have floated from somewhere else, rather than from the carefree? Didn't many other residents of Beckway have 22s? As the hours passed, it was obvious that the prosecution were directing their defense towards Benedict Redhead, their key witness. We knew he had been fired from Jim and Penny during a dispute, and couldn't be considered absolutely objective, but he was the only person who might be able to provide a reasonable motive for the killing. He had told police that he had proof that Penny Fletcher and Jolly Joseph were romantically involved. When he finally took the stand, he seemed sheepish about his status as a key witness. But he was tense and forthright when he recounted how Jim Fletcher had hired him to run small errands for alcohol and cigarettes. He had sailed with them from St. Lucia to Antigua and on to Beckway. Then he explained how, when they were in Port Elizabeth, he had come back from town very late one night and had seen Jolly Joseph in the cockpit of the Carefree, with his arm around Penny, in what he deemed to be a love-making position. When the courtroom heard this, they exploded with laughter. The court called for order until a relative calm was restored. Redhead, having the wind knocked out of his sails, went on with the story, saying that he waited until Jolly had left and then confronted Penny— warning her that she should stop doing these things because her husband would eventually start blaming Redhead. This enraged Penny. She began screaming at him and accusing him of trying to rape her. Jim was drunk and had already passed out, but Penny woke him up, telling him about the supposed rape. Redhead said Jim called her a liar and told her to go to bed. Redhead never brought it up again because he was scared he might be shot. He had seen Penny flash her pistol many times, so he decided to hop into the dinghy and chose to sleep under an almond tree on shore for the rest of the night. When he returned the next day, Jim fired him. It was the defense's turn to question the deckhand. The defense suggested that the truth was at odds with Redhead's account, and they cast him as a villain. They implied that Redhead had actually been bar hopping in town all evening and was drunk when he got back to the boat. In the area, local slang for being drunk was called being sweet, So the defense accused Redhead, saying, "'You were sweet, weren't you?' "'I was not sweet,' he replied loudly. In the defense's version, Redhead was drunk and had stripped down to his underwear as he returned to the boat. He drunkenly accosted Penny when he found her sitting up and reading after Jim had passed out. She resisted his advances, and they fought, making so much noise that Jim woke up and came to Penny's rescue.' Jolly Joseph was nowhere on the scene at all. According to the defense, Jim slapped Redhead in the face and sent him to his room, telling Redhead he would deal with the matter in the morning. "No, your honor, was Redhead's response, denying every charge thrown at him, and he was clearly offended by the time he stepped off the stand. The prosecution had called in twenty-four witnesses, and the rubber dinghy had even been hauled to the courtroom to show the small bullet holes in it But the holes in the case against the Fletchers were even bigger. The bullets found in Jolly's boat matched the slug pulled from Jolly's chest, but didn't match the hundred and twenty rounds remaining on the Fletchers' boat. The blood reported to be in Jolly's boat was determined to be dried paint. The Fletchers had attempted to leave Beckway on October 7th, and it was described by authorities as an escape attempt. Coast Guard officials said their calls to the Fletchers on shortwave radio were ignored and when they reached the boat the radio was on, but in court officials admitted they had forgotten to check what frequency it was tuned to, which made it plausible that the Fletchers were telling the truth when they said they never heard any calls to stay in place. The prosecution produced one final witness, Inspector Ernest James, a top-ranking official on Beckway. He had supervised the murder investigation and stated for the record that the Fletchers had been cooperative and asserted their innocence throughout. He had only one new item to contribute, and that was that the stains on one of the carefree fiberglass storage chests had proven to be blood. It was type O, which was identical to the victim's. When questioned, Jim Fletcher claimed that the blood was his. He had smacked his nose on the lid of the chest while removing a quart of oil from it. Inspector James had noticed a bruise on Fletcher's nose, but when he requested a blood sample for the sake of comparison, Jim had refused to provide it. The judge listened attentively to the arguments from both sides and told the courts he would sleep on the matter and render a decision the next morning. When the next morning came, the courtyard was completely covered with locals, media, and the Fletcher family. As Bob Fletcher made his way through the crowd, a few locals approached him, to offer their support and shake his hand, but others kept their distance and grumbled about the special way the Americans were being treated. Army troops in camouflage uniforms were posted around the courthouse in order to keep peace. The judge gave a 45-minute legal expert opinion. His conclusion was that there was no direct evidence or indirect that the accused had committed the murder. He set the Fletchers free, and the courtroom went crazy. Penny Fletcher burst into tears and lay her head on her husband's chest while family members rushed forward to congratulate them. Mary Joseph, Jolly's mother, cried, and there were shouts and hoots of derision everywhere. The Fletchers paused for a moment to make a brief statement saying that justice had been served and that they would bear no ill will towards the people of St. Vincent. Many locals were outraged. One independent journalist who worked for the West Indies Communications Group said that locals felt that Penny Fletcher was known for her sexual appetite and the apparent indifference of her husband was a cause for local wonder. He believed the media chose to vilify the life of a simple, hard-working man. In Key Largo, a few days after the trial, Jim and Penny gave their only interview to a journalist with the Huntington Herald-Dispatch. They told him about the horror of being in prison and confessed how they had both planned to commit suicide if they were convicted they blamed Prime Minister James Mitchell for all their trouble. They said he was the mastermind behind everything, and he was out to get them because they embarrassed him with their plans to buy books for the children. Jim hinted that the true murderer of Jolly Joseph may have been someone in the courtroom. He went on to say his love for sailing was undiminished, and that he and Penny might get back on the carefree and continue their trip in the future. As far as I could find, there were no further suspects for Jerome Jolly Joseph's murder, and no one has ever been convicted. If you'd like to see the photos that go with this case, please find Twisted Travel and True Crime on Facebook or Instagram. There are links in the show description. That's where you'll find my resources, and if you really like what you heard, you can support the show financially, or by giving it a great rating and review. Maybe share it with a friend. I'm blessed to have wonderful listeners, and to each of you, I wish you fair winds and following seas.